Hi, welcome to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. My name is Jillian and we're so glad you're joining us. Today, Pastor Char Broderson continues through our series, Life in His Name, with a message entitled, The Crucified God. In John 14, Jesus declares He is the way, the truth, and the life. I have a question for us. Do people see our works, our interactions, and the ways we show up for others and know without a shadow of a doubt, they must be Christ followers? Sit with that question. Be uncomfortable with it. I'm right there with you. Friends, do our lives mirror Jesus' way of life? And what does our posture reveal about our character and our attitude? Grab your Bible, writing utensils, and notebooks, and jot down all the things that stand out to you today. So here on Sunday mornings, we are teaching through the Gospel of John with this theme, Life in His Name. And John gives us this purpose statement at the end of his book where he writes that Jesus performed many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that is, God's anointed Savior and King, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I just love this idea that John gives us kind of this lens through which he wants us to receive his message. He has handpicked and curated these particular stories and signs, miracles of Jesus in order that we, the reader, might believe into. So it's even written for the church. This isn't just an evangelistic book, but it's written that we who follow Jesus might believe further into him, that we must, might trust more of our lives into Jesus' care, and that by doing so, ever increasing, we might have life in the name of Jesus. And so I think even for God's people, that is a helpful question for us, to ask ourselves on a regular basis, am I experiencing life in the name of Jesus? Would I describe my journey with Jesus, my experience with Jesus as life in his name? Would I experience or would I express it as maybe frustration in his name? discouragement in his name, condemnation in his name, doubt in his name. See, John writes these things that we might have life in the name of Jesus. And so each week as we study this book together, we are brought back to this question, do I have life in the name of Jesus? And we are invited to believe into Jesus more and more. C.S. Lewis had this phrase that he used, and I love it because it, it reminds me of just this deepening walk with Christ, but he would say, further up, further in. And I think that that's, <clears throat> excuse me, what John is inviting us into. Further up and further in. <clears throat> So sorry. Further up and further in to the life that is in Jesus' name. Now, this morning we come to John chapter 14. And as I approached our passage, I found myself a bit dumbfounded as how to teach it. 
And I kept going back to verse 31 and trying to grab the greater context of what's going on. And I realized that when it comes to this passage, I don't think I've actually been faithful to my own principle of both reading and teaching Scripture in its proper context. Now, one of the reasons for this is that it feels a bit chaotic in its flow. Anybody else feel that as you read it? It's like Jesus keeps trying to start a conversation and then the disciples keep interrupting him with questions. And so then that leads Jesus on this different path of conversation. There's a lot of confusion with the disciples concerning what Jesus has just told them about his going away. And so this prompts them to ask all kinds of questions. And that leads Jesus on these different topics. But then, of course, there is this incredible statement by Jesus. It's one of the famous I am statements. It's one that Christians have kind of taken and extracted as a kind of statement in and of itself. And you can understand why. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Unfortunately, it's also one of those statements by Jesus that we have marketed as the church. We put it on t-shirts and bumper stickers. It's often been used as kind of a be-all, end-all statement to end all, you know, apologetic, evangelistic attempts. Listen, Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. End of discussion. As I sat with this text for the last two weeks... I was hit kind of anew. I actually don't know what this means. Not in any deep way, necessarily. Just, I am the way, the truth, and life. I wonder if we know what it means. Now, let me say this. It clearly speaks to the uniqueness, to both the exclusivity as well as the inclusivity of Jesus. No one There is no in crowd. There is no one who has the corner market on salvation. Anyone and everyone who will receive salvation, who will come to the Father, must come through Jesus. But is that all that this statement means? We need to remember that this statement wasn't made to people who were seeking alternative routes to God. And therefore, Jesus needed to assure them, no, 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 listen, there's only one way. It was said to Jesus' close friends. It was said to his disciples who were confused about the things that he was saying, about how he was going to suffer. We read in chapter 12 that Jesus is speaking to the crowd, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And the crowds are saying, we thought the Son of Man abides forever. What do you mean he must be lifted up? They understand that he's speaking about the crucifixion of this messianic character. The crowds are confused. The disciples are confused. But more than that, Jesus says, I'm going to leave. What do you mean we're gonna, you're going to leave? We just got to Jerusalem. We just had the triumphal entry. Everyone is drawing to you, Jesus. The Greeks are even coming. We're, we're, we're kind of at the pinnacle of this ministry and, and the highlight, you know, the, the top. What do you mean you're going to leave? He's talking about returning to the Father and them not being able to follow. Jesus makes this statement to comfort 
to encourage and to assure the disciples that they truly know God. That's the context of this statement. That they know the Father because they have seen him. Because they had seen and been with Jesus through his whole ministry. Now, to the disciples, to the worried and fearful disciples, this is a statement of comfort and assurance. Yes, that's what it is in its context. But more than that, it is a statement of divine revelation. This is a statement of high Christology. Now, it's been said about the book of John that it's almost like this swimming pool where a child can play in it, but an elephant can bathe. It has this like approachability in the shallow end where anybody can kind of play and get wet and understand it at face value, but there is such incredible depth to the gospel of John as well. And we've come this morning to one of those passages, as I said, of divine revelation and of high Christology. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father with him, that's not all he says. He goes on in verse seven, if you want to read along with me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And then this statement, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. From now on, you know him and have seen him. What is Jesus talking about? From this moment, now in this hour, the disciples know and see the Father. How should we understand what Jesus is saying here? And I think we need to go back again to grab this context back in chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. It says in 31, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. You remember in chapter 12, Jesus made a similar statement when he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And back when we were going through that passage, we mentioned, I read this quote by Richard Bauckham, which I'll read again. He says, the whole gospel story moves toward what is called Jesus's hour. By this, John seems to me the complex of events that occur in chapters 12 through 20. The passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. This is the hour of Jesus' exaltation. When he is exalted on the cross in order to be exalted to heaven. The cross is the climax of the work that God has given Jesus to do And so it is the climax of his life of seeking God's glory, not his own. It is therefore also the climax of the revelation of God's glory in the flesh. 
Now, as I've mentioned before, this statement by Jesus in John chapter 12 is this pivotal point in John's gospel to the hour or moment where God will be most glorified in and through Jesus, which is why some have coined this section of John's gospel, the book of glory. The statement by Jesus, it's significant because since the beginning of this gospel, John as well as Jesus keep telling us that Jesus' hour had not yet come. And Jesus continually makes reference to this moment, this hour, this time in his earthly ministry where he and the Father will be most glorified. Now, I've mentioned this already, but let me just be very explicit. The hour or moment of lifting up or glorification of the Son of Man is where he will be lifted up on the cross for all people to see. There, at the cross, the glory of God will be made known. What does that mean, the glory of God? I think what John makes, means it to mean is God's greatest moment of revelation. The veil will be pulled back and we will see the true nature of our God. An exhibition of who our God is and has always been. This is the moment of great revelation. There in the lifting up of the Son of Man. And there we see at the cross that God is not just the God who dwells in unapproachable light, God who is surrounded by cherubim and seraphim who cry, holy, 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 but that he is the God of lowly foot washing. He is the God of crucifixion, that he is the God of suffering. Now, there are all sorts of ideas that we have about God, that we have about his person, his character, what, he think, what we think he's like, what we think he's after from humans. And that's not just in the church, but it's also in the culture. You ever notice just the, you know, kind of caricature that's made of God in, say, you know, Looney Tunes cartoons, Right? How is God perceived? He's like a Zeus character, right? He's always ticked off at somebody and he's throwing lightning bolts and just waiting to just bring the hammer of judgment down. He wants everybody just to stay right in line, sterile, solemn, and serious, just like him. These are some ways that people think about God. Now, there are also other ways that people think about God. And so these, you know, some extremes here, the sterile, solemn, and serious, or there's attempt to try to capture a vision of maybe even personal hedonism in and through the person of God. One pastor theologian puts it like this, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. The point is, is that everywhere and in between, we have views about who God is, what he's really like, and what he's after from human beings. A.W. Tozer wrote in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, that what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Meaning that what we believe God is like in the deep recesses of our being shapes the whole course of our lives. It will affect everything else. This last year, um, for my seminary courses, I was assigned this book, Delighting in the Trinity, by an author named Michael Reeves. And it was interesting. It was one of those points in my life where I thought, you know, I've read all these other theological books on the Trinity. Like, you really think your book's going to do something else for me. But just a little plug here. I read the book, Delighting in the Trinity, and guess what? Afterwards, I was delighting in the Trinity. So that's just a little plug to this book. Just a beautiful, beautiful um, picture of God and who he is in relation to the Father, and, or excuse me, in relation to the Son and the Spirit. But in his book, he notes that our mistake when we think about God is that we often begin with our own ideas about God, whether from Christian culture or our upbringing or the surrounding culture, and then we try to fit the biblical God into those already formed ideas. Now, this is very unhelpful when it comes to the God of the Bible, and it will surely bring about skewed and wrong ideas about God, and as I said before, it will always result in wrong ideas about ourselves and character deformation. Now, I bring this all up because I think this is exactly what we do with Jesus, We begin with our ideas about who God is and what he's like, and then we try to fit Jesus into that already formed image. John tells us in the beginning of this gospel, no one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. He has revealed him. So in other words, all your preconceived thoughts and ideas about who God is and what he is like, you need to set those aside. You need to suspend them and give your full attention to Jesus. Look to Jesus if you want to know who God is and what he is like. And now just think about this gospel that we've been studying together. Look at Jesus. See him going out of his way to seek one thirsty soul at Jacob's well. See him drawn to the pool that houses the disabled and deformed in order to heal one ungrateful human. See him stooping to make mud to heal the blind man. See him rise to defend the woman caught in adultery. Hear him weep at the grave of Lazarus. Look at him clothed in a towel as he washes the feet of his dear friends and even of his betrayer. Hear him declare that he is the bread of life to a hungry world, that he is the living water that our souls thirst for, that he is the good shepherd that gives his life for the sheep. Listen as he declares that he is the light that lightens our darkness and shows us the way of life. 
John and Jesus insist that he who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. Paul will later write that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and he is the exact imprint of his nature, that he is the image of the invisible God. Now, I've been referring to Jesus' life in ministry, but it is particularly the cross that is the ultimate revelation and glorification of who our God is. See, the cross is the greatest single meeting place with the human race. Where God meets all suffering, where God meets all sin and brokenness. It is God's one great hour of sharing with the world, where God's body will become bread, where God's Blood will become drink for the life of the world. It is the greatest revelation of his goodness and his character. You know, you think about it. We can read through the Old Testament. We can read the book of Job. We can read through uh, Ecclesiastes. We can see the suffering of the psalmist. We can see all of these just people who are suffering, or excuse me, these righteous people who are suffering unjustly. And we can say, oh, look how, you know, the good that God did to Job. And we can try to reconcile all these things. But it isn't until we come to the cross that we actually see the fullness of the goodness of God. There where God himself takes upon our suffering. Where God himself takes upon our sin. There in this peculiar head-scratching moment, this lifting up of the Son of Man, God has made himself most accessible to the world. What is God like? Look to the cross. How much does God love this world? Look to the cross. What does God feel about the just injustices of the world, the sins of the world? Look to the cross. How can I know and come to God? Look to the cross. Martin Luther in his lectures on Galatians said something along these lines. Forget all speculation about God. Hold on to the man Jesus Christ. He's the only God we've got. What a line. He's the only God we've got. Again, how else can we reconcile statements in the Old Testament? And there are many of them. Statements that God is near to the brokenhearted. Except through the cross, it's hogwash. What does that mean? That God is near to the brokenhearted, that he saves those who are humble, that he identifies with those. What could that possibly mean except for through the cross? There is this incredible statement by God in Isaiah 57, 15, and I want you to listen to it now through this lens of the foot-washing, crucified God. Listen to what 
Isaiah 57 says, for this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. You know, just picture rolling thunder and crashing lightning, cherubim and seraphim. Holy, holy, holy. He says, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Only in the cross is Isaiah 57, 15 actually true. That though God is high and lofty, oh, he is near to those who are humble, lowly, to the weak, to the suffering, to the sinful, to the broken, to them through the cross. He is the foot-washing crucified God. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in his Advent book called God is in the Manger, he writes this. It's a little long, but I thought it worthy. God travels wonderful ways with human beings, but he does not comply with the views and opinions of people. God does not go the way that people want to prescribe for him. Rather, his way is beyond all comprehension, free and self-determined beyond all proof, where reason is indignant, where our nature rebels and where our piety anxiously keeps us away, that is precisely where God loves to be. There he confounds the reason of the reasonable. There he aggravates our nature, our piety. That is where he wants to be and no one can keep him from it. Only the humble believe and rejoice that God is so free and so marvelous that he does wonders where people despair, that he takes what is little and lowly and makes it marvelous. And that is the wonder of all wonders, that God loves the lowly. God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in. He chooses people as his instrument and performs his wonders where one would least expect them. God is near to lowliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak, the broken. This is who God is. He is the crucified God. You see, the lowly manger of Bethlehem, the obscure life and career of Jesus, the brutal suffering of the cross is not something other than who God is in his very nature and person. See, the life and work of Jesus is not just an unnecessary excursion, but is rather the greatest revelation of the goodness and love of God. It is our clearest picture of who our God is and has always been. The God of self-giving love. That he is the humble God, the servant God, 
the foot-washing, crucified God. Now, this is what I believe Jesus means when he tells the disciples and his church that he is the way and the truth and the life. A statement of comfort, but a statement of powerful, divine revelation about his true person. That no one comes to the Father except through him. And I believe it's vitally important for us to understand this before we seek to understand and apply what it means to do works in his name or ask anything according to his name. See, Jesus' statement challenges and comforts. It challenges me to answer, will I follow Jesus the way? But it comforts me by assuring me that it is the only true way. It is the only way that results in deep, lasting life. It is the only true way to know God. It is the only true way to know the truth, to know the life that is in his name. So then Jesus turns and he begins to commend or direct his disciples to these works that they are going to do. He was talking to them about how the Father is in him and the works that he has done. These are the Father's works being done in and through him. And he says, and these works you're going to do, the same works that were manifest in me are going to be manifest in you. You'll do works in my name, and whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. From the beginning of John's gospel, there is this theme of the sentness of Jesus. He is the light that is coming into the world. He is the son the father sends into the world in order to save and rescue it. And as the narrative continues, John begins to show that there is a sentness to Jesus' disciples as well. Remember the story of the woman at the well? How once she receives this revelation about her own heart and about Jesus' offer of living water, what does she do? She goes and she tells everyone, come, meet a man who told me everything I ever did. And she brings all this horde to Jesus. She's this example of how now that Jesus has been sent in the world and he has touched one person with his living water, that person then is sent out into the world to work the same works of Jesus, to testify in the same way that Jesus has testified in order to bring people to Jesus, to know him and to experience him. But she's not the only one. There's also the story of the man who was born blind. And it's, sometimes we can miss this in our modern English translations, but there's all this play on words that John is using. Do you know that this man is sent by Jesus to the pool of the sent one. So he's sent to the pool of the apostle, right? And what is an apostle? It's one who has been commissioned, one who has been sent with a message. 
And so John is even playing with this. And so this man, he has been sent to the pool of the sent one to wash, and there he's healed. And then he stands before the religious leaders, and what does he say? Listen, I don't know what you're talking about, and I don't know what your hang-up is, but this I know. I once was blind, and now I see. This is this reoccurring theme that is happening in the Gospel of John. Jesus is the sent one, the apostle from the Father to bring us into this life that is in his name. And now Jesus sends disciples out in his name to do the same works that he has been doing in his name. This is how Jesus sends us out into the world to continue his witness and works about the true character of our God, the foot-washing, crucified God. When Jesus says, you know, works in my name, pray according to my name, that's not just the name Jesus. I mean, if it really was Jesus, we'd be like, wow, should we call him Isus? Should we call him Yeshua? I mean, what language should we say his name in? Because we want to get this right. What does it mean to do works in the name of Jesus? What does it mean to ask according to the name? It means according to the person, according to the caliber of the character and the witness of that very person. Jesus is sending us out to continue his works and his ministry. That means that the posture of God's people is this servant posture of Jesus in the world. To serve others, whatever the need, no matter the situation. Now Richard, he mentioned this a few weeks back. Jesus, in John chapter 13, picked one of the most culturally degrading, humble acts to show us how we are to do works in his name. How we are to live our lives as foot washers. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we, you know, now go around with towels and basins of water and, you know, at Ralph's, you know, you try to pull somebody's eye, listen, just need to wash your feet. I mean, you might get a reaction, that's for sure. But Jesus, of course, is not calling us to literal foot washing, but foot washing service as a principle and continual way of life. Our posture in the world. To be servants of all. Because this is who he is. This is what he did. I think one good way that we can think about this is that God's people, disciples of Jesus, are people that proactively go low in order to serve others. Is there an opportunity to humble myself? Is there an opportunity to stoop, to get down on somebody's level? to get down in order to shoulder the burden of someone else. Disciples of Jesus seek out opportunities to make themselves the servant of others. And as we do, we put who God is on display for the world to see and receive.
You know, I was thinking about this uh, some time ago, but just the fact that Jesus is always moving to the place of brokenness, of need, of hurt in the world, that this is what his ministry is marked by continually. Not the clean, not the comfortable, not the nice and neat, but the broken places of the world. One theologian said that the church is called to this intersection where we find our gifts and the world's greatest need. That's where God calls us to be, where our gifts, these talents and resources that God has given us and the world's greatest need coincide. That's where Jesus' people are to be. Craig Hovey, he puts it this way. He says, the church is elected to responsibility, called to be the church to and for the world. Listen to this. Not in order to save it or conquer it or even transform it. Sometimes we actually even communicate the gospel in those ways, right? Like, oh, it's our responsibility to go out there and to save culture, save people, save our neighbors. It's our job or responsibility to transform culture. And yes, do we want to be an influence? Are we called to be salt and light? Absolutely. But listen to what he goes on to say. Not in order to save it or conquer it or even transform it, but to serve it by showing what redeemed human community and culture look like as modeled by the one whose cultural work led him to the cross. In short, we're sent out to be martyrs, witnesses of the crucified one. This week, I had the incredible honor to go and visit uh, an organization called Johnny and Friends. And they have their facility up in Agora Hills. And a huge part of their ministry is ministering to those who are paraplegic or disabled or have um, severe, you know, mental disabilities. And just hearing these incredible stories about how these people have dedicated their lives to serve the least of these. And on the way, I was talking with Jordan and our executive team, and we were discussing a man named Henry Nowen. And what an incredible life Henry Nowen lived. Henry Nowen, if you've never heard of him before, he was a Dutch Catholic priest. He's a professor, writer, and theologian, and his focus was rooted primarily in psychology, pastoral ministry, spirituality, and concerns about social justice and you know, the community of God's people. After nearly two decades of teaching at institutions like Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard, now and left all that to work with individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities at Layark Daybreak Community in Richmond Hill, Ontario. And there he spent the last 10 years of his life ministering as pastor to this community. And there actually now and penned some of his greatest insights about Christian leadership. He wrote a book called 
in the name of Jesus. And it's a book that pastors and ministry leaders and Christians should probably visit often. In the name of Jesus. This is how Henry Nouwen chose to spend the final years of his life. It was the way that Nouwen perceived that he was called to follow Jesus' call to go low, to be a foot washer, to walk in the way of the crucified God, to use the giftings and opportunities he was given to serve others around him. But Nouwen is not unique in being called to follow Jesus in his servant, foot-washing, cruciform way. So must everyone who will truly follow after Jesus and continue his works and witness in the world. You might not have the same education, resources, mind that Henry Nouwen has, but God has gifted you and God has called you and he has put you in the midst of a community that is in desperate need of service, that is in need to know the foot-washing, crucified God because they have totally wrong ideas about who God is, about what he's all about and about what he wants from human beings. And God has called you and I He has sent us in the name of Jesus to continue the work and witness of Jesus in these places. I believe if more Jesus followers took up this call, people really would reconsider what it means that Jesus is the way the truth, and the life. Now as we close, I want to ask, what might this foot-washing, cruciform posture look like in our everyday lives? How could we put the life of Jesus on display? Now, to me, I think one of the problems is that we just go like, for the marathon, or excuse me, we go for the sprint when we just need to like start training for the marathon. Right? We want to go all out. Okay, I'm going to give all of my free time and I'm going to serve at the food bank. Okay, slow your roll, right? Come back a little bit. Well, I'm going to sell everything that I have and I'm going to go to the farthest reaches of the world. What is in your hand? What do you have before you now? What has God placed in your lap? Who are the people in your life that just simply need to be listened to? Those that you can show good hospitality with. Guests that God might bring to your door, even solicitors, right? Good attention to your customers and clients. Students and colleagues in business and work. You know, when I first went up to Santa Rosa, I worked at uh, Starbucks. Um, as a coffee snob, I'm a little ashamed to say that publicly. But 
It's true. I worked at Starbucks. And I, you know, I had to like sell all this stuff that I didn't believe in and sell coffee that I didn't think was that great. Anyway, you know, sometimes it just felt so frustrating being there. Like, and I was working there in order to support me being a part of this church plan up in Santa Rosa, you know, and my boss is telling me, you've got to sell pastries and you've got to sell espresso machines and do all this. I'm just like, gosh, I don't believe in any of this stuff. Like, it's hard to sell something when you don't believe in the product, right? And so I determined what I was going to do as a follower of Jesus is I was going to make every single transaction the best interaction possible for that person in front of me. I'm going to look them in the eyes, give them the best service possible, be as kind as I possibly could in order to simply put the life of Jesus on display. I wanted this to be the best experience, even though it was Starbucks, best experience cup of coffee they could possibly have because I'm a follower of Jesus. And I know that's like so like base, that's so low, but I think it even starts there that we practice in these ways that are so close to us, so near. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Where are you? What are the opportunities that God has given you? Who are the people around you? And how can you look for ways to go low and to be at their service as a way to wash their feet in order to put who God really is on display? Just being at your service as a whole way of life. These and a hundred of other daily responsibilities and opportunities are beautifully pictured by Jesus' foot washing and his cruciform way of life. Jesus sends disciples out and through their works to show that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So as we close, these questions, are our lives mirroring Jesus' way of life, his servant nature, his foot washing, his cruciform posture. And as we ask these questions, this isn't like a way to like, oh, woe is me, I'm always getting it wrong, came to church and got beat up, I gotta do better, try harder. You know, we've been doing this thing in our spiritual disciplines class If I am a new creation in Christ and my identity in Christ, confession is actually a way of pulling out those things that do not line up with who I am now in Christ. And in confession, I remove it from myself and I say, God, take this from me. It does not honor you. It does not line up with who I am now in Christ. And so we have this opportunity this morning. If there are ways in our lives in which, man, we've been out of line with the way of Jesus, we confess those things to say, this is not who I am because this is not who Christ is. And guess what? Christ takes that from us. He nails it to the cross. He sets us free. So we have this incredible opportunity this morning to release those things that are out of line with the way of Jesus and then to receive anew from Jesus, his servant, cruciform way of life. And so as we approach the table together this morning and we're reminded of Jesus' great service to us where he didn't just wash our feet, but he washed away our sins, 
We're reminded of his body that was broken for us, of his blood that was shed to make us righteous and reconcile us to God. Let us talk with Jesus. Jesus, where are you calling me to follow you in your foot-washing, cruciform way? And lead me in your way, in your truth, and in your life. Amen.